Thank you, Shirley. You did awesome with those names. And thanks to the rest of you for standing through the long passage I chose. Let's, uh, we're going to the living Word of God, so please, where you are, let's take a moment. We're going to pray and we're going to ask Holy Spirit to teach us and to show us something this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to fill not only this room, but also our hearts. We invite the spirit of revelation to help us look inward uh, so that we can look outward. We invite you to teach us, to refine us, and to make us a little more like Christ through our time this morning. We love you. Thank you, Holy One. Amen. Well, Park, Oak Park, it's good to be here. Not only because we're from the same church family, but as was mentioned earlier, because I grew up just down the street. It feels like I'm coming home. So I'm from Woodbine. Is there anybody here who's living in Woodbine? Anybody? Okay. Awesome. Very few. We, clearly that, that um, whatever the, the transit thing was a lot more divisive than I realized. So I grew up in Woodbine when, it was the, when Patisserie de Soleil was still a dairy queen. So that's where I went to spend my pocket change. And when my pocket change ran out, I had to get a job. And so I started working at the Oak Ridge Co-op Gas Bar, just down the road here. I was waiting for Sam to woot when I said that. I, there, yeah, woo! Sam was my coworker. She was, one of, she was my first coworker. Now, um, if you've been around long enough and you shop there, I probably filled your tank with gas. And I probably left really bad streaks on your windshield. So for that, I apologize now. But I was actually working there in the summer of 2009 when the unthinkable happened. Gas hit $1.34 a liter. Unbelievable. Now, last time I filled up, in fact, I think the gas station across the lot here is at about 171. And that's long enough to make me wait in those unbelievably long lines at Costco for gas. But I will pay for it every time because I have learned the value of a full tank of gas. I was driving down Deerfoot Trail, and I can now admit I was in a car that probably shouldn't have been on the road. Old cars don't have problems. They have character. And part of this car's character was that the gas gauge didn't work. It wasn't inaccurate. It just didn't work. So I drove by mileage. I could get maybe 450 kilometers to a tank, give or take. And at this point, my quick napkin math told me that I had 50 kilometers to go. Okay. My engine disagreed. It lurched and it sputtered and for a moment and then shut down altogether. And the dashboard lit up in protest to my poor choices. My math was wrong. But my timing was right. The next exit was right there. So I dropped it into neutral and coasted to a stop halfway up the hill. I propped my car hood in what I thought was the universally accepted sign of car trouble. And then I started waving down passing cars, waiting for someone to pull over. One, two, three cars shot by. Didn't even look. The fourth one made eye contact, but kept driving. Five and six, I think I saw them shield their eyes. Eight and, or seven, eight, and nine, I believe had kids. So that was okay. Nine cars drove past me 
while I waved them down. They ignored me in my moment of trouble. You guys have been reading through the book of Esther. And by now you have seen that the Jews were in trouble. The car trouble I experienced pales in comparison to the existential crisis they faced. Their very existence was threatened. In fact, it seemed like a bygone conclusion that on the 13th day of Adar, they would be completely destroyed, annihilated, and their treasured belongings would be given to those who did the deed. It was injustice at its worst. The few, mad with power, controlling the fate of the many without. And where was the Lord when all this was happening? Nowhere to be seen. You may have heard that it was debated whether or not Esther should actually be considered Scripture because there is no mention of the Lord at all. It is utterly unlike the book of Daniel, which, following a very similar story of an exceptional Jew who is placed in the government of a foreign nation during the same time, and yet the Lord guides Daniel's every step, making his presence known by wacky dreams and memorable miracles. And we love stories like that. We love seeing the undeniable hand of God saving his people, demonstrating his might. But Esther has none of that. God is silent, unfelt, unseen, unlike Jacob over here. We want to read Daniel's story, but more often than not, we live Esther's. And yet, even though the Lord is nowhere to be seen, it's clear from the start that he's not absent. As you've read through this book, you've probably seen the string of happy coincidences that take place. Queen Vashti is banished, and Esther, a Jew, is chosen in her place. There's a plot to kill the king, and Esther's uncle, Mordecai, hears the whole thing just in time to stop it. Haman conspires to kill Mordecai, and the very night that he goes to get the execution order from the king, the king remembers Mordecai's service. And Haman, thinking he would get the order to kill, instead is handed the reins to the very donkey he will parade throughout the city with Mordecai on his back, crying, this is what happens to the one the king is pleased with. His providence is on display at all times and in all ways. Even in our passage today. This chapter starts in typical Esther style with a lavish banquet where the wine is flowing. This is the second banquet Esther's thrown for the king in a series of calculated moves. And as often happens when the wine is flowing, the king asks a question that he is going to regret later. Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Have you ever daydreamed what, what you would do if you won the lottery? Thoughts like that must have danced through Esther's head. The most powerful person in the world was offering her a blank check. Solomon, in all of his splendor, didn't have half the riches of Babylon and Persia. How easy it would have been for Esther to use that for her own personal gain. 
how pragmatic it would have been to look after herself. But even without a thus saith the Lord statement, we can hear the divine words echoing in the voice of Mordecai, saying, Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And she was not alone. Even though it looked like it was just Esther, Haman, and the king in the room, Holy Spirit was there, our constant companion, filling Esther with courage, the courage she desperately needed. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this absolute monarch was renowned for his temper. Remember, it was not only Haman that had threatened the Jews. The king himself had given assent to this edict. Esther's gamble depended on him choosing her, his favorite wife, over Haman, his favorite advisor, and even less likely, over his own pride. Now, the king and the queen didn't have a husband-wife relationship like we know it. She saw him infrequently. And it was a very transactional relationship, to put it tenderly. Haman, on the other hand, was with the king round the clock and had earned the king's trust through his competence in advising matters of the court. There was no telling how the king would respond to Esther's request. Even so, she could have clinged to her comfort, to her privilege, to her safety. But Esther wouldn't turn back now. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. That is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as female and male slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify the king. Who could deny such a request? This outraged the king. And it doesn't come through well in the English, but it has been said that the sharp, short, and rapid syllables in the Hebrew make this verse sound like machine gun fire. Rage boils within the king at the thought of someone threatening his beloved queen. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. This is exactly what Esther was waiting for. And once again in the Hebrew, her, her response is very short, very sharp, and rapid. An adversary and an enemy. This vile Haman. And immediately Haman realized his mistake. But so did the king. He stormed out of the room in a rage, not to hide his anger. He was used to yelling at people but to hide the dilemma he had found himself in. He had three times publicly promised to give Esther anything she wanted. And this time that meant admitting that he was wrong. How many husbands can do that? How often do we see powerful people admit that they are wrong? And not to mention, the king's edicts were irrevocable. There's no take-backs in Persian legislation. 
But what happens next is another example of the unseen God intervening in Esther's situation. There was no doubt in Haman's mind that he was about to incur the wrath of the king. He didn't know how severe the wrath would be. But he knew his only hope was to change Esther's mind. And so, falling on her couch, he begged her for mercy. Now what should Esther do? After all, her request was to save her people, not to avenge them. Now we might expect Esther, the heroine that she is, to say something along the lines of, Haman, I too am a sinner saved by God's grace, so I forgive you. Didn't the Lord himself say, it is mine to avenge, I will repay? Well, that's actually the point. What's happening now with Haman is payment for the past. This is Haman, the Agagite. Try that one, Shirley, Agagite. He is descended from King Agag, the ancient king of the Amalekites. And they have a history with the Jews. When the Jews were leaving Egypt, just a small infant nation, the Amalekites attacked. And during this battle, a curious thing happened. Moses stood on a hill overlooking the battle. And whenever he raised his hands, the Israelites were winning. And whenever he lowered his hands, the Israelites were losing. And so two people, his brother and one other, propped up his arms so that they would remain steady until sunset. And the Jews won the battle. And then, after that, the Lord said, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Now, these are hard words to hear from a God of love. And yet, they were completely necessary in the brutal Bronze Age the Jews lived in. Israel wouldn't be safe as long as the Amalekites survived. And so later, the Lord commanded King Saul to devote the Amalekites to destruction, including King Agag and all of his possessions. And Saul reneged. And in that moment, Saul lost his anointing as the king. And because he refused to follow through, hundreds of years later, in a foreign nation, an Amalekite named Haman threatened the existence of the Jews again. But it wasn't Saul's responsibility to protect the Jews. And it wasn't Esther's either. It was a condition of the covenant the Lord had made with the people that he would protect them. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And protect them he does. Because coincidentally, just as Haman falls on the couch, the king enters. And it was law that no man should be within seven steps of a woman in the king's harem. Totally backwards, completely backwards law. And yet one that the Lord used to save his people from the evil of Haman. The king was outraged at what he saw, and this resolved his dilemma. He could now punish Haman without revoking his edict. Haman had sealed his own fate. 
And in a tragic twist of irony, the king ordered that he be impaled on the very same pole that he had set up for Mordecai. This is one of the many reverses of Esther, but by far the most dramatic. Does anybody think this is a go-and-do-likewise passage? If any of you install a pointy pole in your backyard, I am not coming over for dinner. But like all Scripture, this passage is still useful for our own sanctification. The world is very different than when Esther ruled. But one thing hasn't changed. Those with power still inflict injustice. And the unseen God still uses people like you and me to enact his will in the world, whether we want to or not. Now the question is, will we be partners with God or will we be pawns? God's will shall be accomplished one way or the other. And God desires justice. And that justice isn't restricted to the Jews or even to the church. It's a justice for all. And in the pursuit of justice, it's not enough to simply pray, your will be done. We have to be willing to act. And that means courageously making other people's problems our problems. The mission of God means ending injustice wherever the kingdom goes. But we evangelical Christians have a tendency to overemphasize personal holiness instead of public holiness. We are quick to identify personal vices like anger or lust as sin, but we have a tendency to be tolerant of social sins. For instance, children in the Ukraine are growing up without parents. They are going to bed hungry and they don't have access to clean water. And I see your board out there dedicated to the Ukraine as a fourth-generation Canadian who came from Ukraine. I thank you. It's truly terrible. But First Nations children here live the same way, largely due to the way we structured things. We call one war crimes. We call the other Tuesday. It is still sin. We just don't label it as such. What we allow to happen in our society is just as important as what we do in our private lives. Because the same God who said, be holy, told us to look after the poor and the fatherless, the orphan and the widow. It's contradictory to say we walk with God and then to ignore the cries for justice from our First Nation community or to ignore the plight of the poor. Public holiness is just as important as personal holiness. And we don't need to stand up against bloodthirsty statesmen like Haman anymore. But we do need to confront the stain of injustice in our own communities. And that starts with making other people's problems our problems. Now, I don't say this to condemn anyone here. Rather, to convict. Condemnation is a punishment against those who are guilty. And our society loves to deal out condemnation in conversations about justice. Condemnation tries to find the blame in others, but conviction looks inward. 
to see our own participation in the problem. Conviction is the tool Holy Spirit uses to make us more like Christ. It's deeply personal, which means it hurts. But it's always meant to bring about positive change. This is where we need the courage of Esther to look inward, to confront our own views, our own behaviors, our own benefits that are contributing to injustice. And our natural response to this is to become defensive, to refuse to admit wrongdoing, to place the blame somewhere else. Maybe we're a little like King Xerxes in that way. But we cannot become more like Christ until we go through the hard process of repenting of our sin and aligning ourselves with the will of God. God is bringing about this change one way or another. Let us be the people partnering with God as He changes the world, not the stubborn pawns that will be moved either way. And I know that you as a church are already heavily involved in the community. I have seen the food bank you offer, the clothes that you freely give away. You are doing so much. But there is still so much left to be redeemed. As I sat on the side of Deerfoot and the ninth car drove by me, I had lost all faith in Calgarians. I started cheering for the Oilers. <laughs> but then the tenth car pulled over. And when he learned of my predicament, he wasn't condemning in the slightest. He went to his shop. He grabbed a jerry can full of gas, and not a small one, a big one. And he emptied it into my car. And declining my offer for payment, he said, pay it forward. And then he drove off. I've never seen him again. My problem became his problem. And he reminds me of another man that took on my problems as his own. Jesus. Jesus made my problems his problems when he died for my sin. He took our problems and gave us freedom. Now let us go and do the same. Pay it forward. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, it is hard to look inward and to see our own sin. But we don't have to do it alone because you are with us. And so we pray that you would give us insight. We pray that you would give us words that overpower our own excuses, our own defenses that help us to see where we are succeeding but also where we are failing. We ask for the courage that you filled Esther with that one fateful night. We ask that you would help us to make the world the redeemed creation you want it to be. Go with us this week and give us strength. Amen. Thank you.